Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we replace, we discuss, replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We have our friend Dr. David Singh in the studio again. He is at Queen's Heart. He is the electrophysiologist and now chief of the cardiovascular diseases division at Queen's Medical Center. And today we're going to talk about a problem that you might now even see in commercials, atrial fibrillation. If you watch any TV, there are all these commercials now about different types of blood thinners and things you can do to treat this particular condition for stroke prevention. But today we're going to talk about the latest in atrial fibrillation and some new data that's come out from an electrophysiology conference you just attended, Dr. Singh, and how this is really transforming the way that we may treat fibrillation now and into the future. So thank you for coming back to join us on The Body Show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Now, you've been an electrophysiologist for over a decade. Almost a decade. Almost a decade. Okay. Younger than younger <laughs> than I had mentioned. You'll take it. Okay. And in that time, you've seen some of the concepts of electrophysiology change from let's just treat this particular electrical problem to let's take a look at the bigger, grander picture. What sort of ways have you seen this whole field emerge in the last five or seven years or so? Yeah, well, you know, some of it is is really just luck in, in terms of my falling into a field that is really transforming while I'm in it. Uh, if you go back, you know, 25 years, electrophysiology was really limited to putting people on antiarrhythmic drugs, which um, can be quite toxic and difficult for patients to take. And there really wasn't much else you could do um, for a lot of rhythms um, like atrial fibrillation. And then due to some really important discoveries and developments in technology, there have been an explosion of um, therapies available uh, for management of different rhythm disorders, the most common of which is atrial, fibrilla atrial fibrillation. That's far and away the most common rhythm disorder of adults. And this term ablation, many of your listeners are probably familiar with, is now like sort of a household name in the sense that we've learned that you can go into the heart uh, invasively without having to cut people open, but actually go into the heart, target areas of the heart that are um, causing problems, uh, in this case causing atrial fibrillation, and actually ablate them, which essentially means to burn or freeze them. And by doing that, you can significantly impact the, the course of the disease. And so the the the, the um, field has really uh, emerged as a very technologically um, advanced field and a very procedurally oriented field. So when patients are referred to me for management of atrial fibrillation, the central question that uh, many of the referring providers are asking and the patients are asking is, can I get an ablation? Um, and I think it's taken us a long way, but you know it's very interesting to see the pendulum swinging back because a lot of people were asking, including many of my patients, well, how do I prevent atrial fibrillation? Or because we know that atrial fibrillation is a progressive disease, how do I stop the progression? And now we're learning more and more that some of the really basic tenets of healthcare, like weight loss, uh, good sleep hygiene, treating sleep apnea, abstaining from heavy doses of alcohol, all of those things actually may have a big impact on atrial fibrillation. And that's some of the really exciting stuff that we're learning now. So in general, atrial fibrillation is this issue where your heart should beat the top part of your heart's supposed to tell the rest of your heart where to go and how to do it. Like, this is when you beat. And it sort of sets the tone. This this sinoatrial note, my people might hear about sinus rhythm, just means that this top right portion of your heart is in control, and it's the part that's telling your heart how often to beat. 
And it has these little fibers that go down to the bottom part that sort of activate the rest of the heart. So fibrillation is when that part isn't working. So another part of the heart says, I'm going to tell the heart when to beat. And it might just wind up not being a good contraction. I know there's been this description, which just sounds really weird, but it's quite descriptive. Bag of worms. It just sounds gross. But it sort of describes what the heart may look like. You've seen hearts fibrillate. Is that what it looks like? I mean, I've, I don't really collect worms yeah. in a bag, but I mean, I could imagine they would sort of do this weird quivering kind of motion. So that's what atrial fibrillation actually is, like an electrical storm in your heart. Yeah, a storm is a great um, way of describing it. I guess maybe a worm storm, if you were carrying that analogy storm. further. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, the, the idea with fibrillation, as you described, is that the heart is um, on the top of the heart that we refer to this as the atria. Those are beating so fast, they're actually just quivering. So they're just sort of undulating. A normal heart rate, for example, is between 60 and 80 beats per minute. If you exercise, it might go up to 110, 120, 140. When a patient is in atrial fibrillation, the top chambers of their heart are beating, you know, four to 500 beats per minute. And when the heart is beating that fast, we refer to that as fibrillatory activity. Now, fortunately, uh, the top chambers are telling the bottom chambers what to do, but the bottom chambers don't respond as quickly as the top chambers are telling them. Otherwise, the bottom chambers would be fibrillating also, and that would be bad. So there's a little bit of a safety mechanism built into our heart that says, hey, if we get too many impulses, pulses from up top, we're going to slow things down. Nonetheless, one of the you know things that we see in patients with atrial fibrillation is because the top chambers are beating so fast that they're driving the bottom chambers to go a lot faster than they should. And that's one of the reasons people feel so badly a lot of the times in AFib because they may be sitting down with a heart rate of 160, 170. And it's like if they're doing that every minute of every day, it's like they're running marathons all the time. And what can happen is people can get very short of breath. They can get fatigued. They can um, develop heart failure, uh, chest pain, all kinds of symptoms as a result of that. Um, so the the key here is that the top chambers are very disorganized. They're causing the bottom chambers to be disorganized too. And what you end up with is a pretty disorganized situation that we try to restore when we're treating patients with atrial fibrillation. So like 25 years ago, you might have been giving them medicine to get them to go back into a regular heart rhythm. And now what you're doing is potentially affecting that part of the heart that's making this quivering happen and finding the source of where that all started and then not letting that area take charge anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the most important observations in uh, the management of atrial fibrillation came out of a, a, a group in Bordeaux, France. I'm still waiting to get get my trip over there to go actually see what they do. Keep mentioning it. <laughs> see what happens. You yeah. Know. So um, – you know, they discovered, uh, and, and many other people were sort of on board with this, but in order for not every heart is capable of fibrillating. So not everybody uh, can uh, develop atrial fibrillation. And to develop it, you really need two things. The first thing is a trigger. You need something that turns the AFib on. And you, usually that's the result of some area of the heart beating very, very, very rapidly. And if you beat very, very rapidly, oftentimes the heart will start to fibrillate. The key here is that unless you have the substrate, unless you have the raw material in the heart, and in particular the atria in this case, such that it's 
capable of fibrillating, it's not going to happen. So you need both things. You need trigger and substrate. The triggers were discovered um, as being these pulmonary veins, which are these veins that drain blood from the lungs to the heart. And that's often what we'll target. But the key here also is recognizing that we can modify the substrate and in some cases even reverse the substrate necessarily to develop atrial fibrillation. And that's where the really exciting work in AFib is happening now. All right. Well, we're going to hear more about the excitement in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is an electrophysiologist, chief of the cardiovascular disease group at Queens Medical Center. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of that exciting information that he's learned at a recent conference and how we've now come to look at atrial fibrillation as one aspect of a large continuum of risk factors that may need to be controlled in order to prevent progression of other types of heart disease problems. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is an electrophysiology expert at Queen's Heart. And right before the break, we were talking about what's needed to develop atrial fibrillation. You need a trigger and you need a substrate. You need an area of the heart that is susceptible to allowing this to occur. So you mentioned the pulmonary veins, and this is an area where blood comes from your lungs to your heart. And it's an area where there is the potential to have these triggers, to have this this issue with the fibrillation. Now, when you say you target that area, that's specifically talking about the ablation aspect of things. You mentioned that there, not everybody can fibrillate. So there are some people who have hearts that are healthier that might not have that substrate capacity. What are some of the risk factors for someone developing atrial fibrillation and having this issue that might lead to the ablation or medication or et cetera? Right. So, uh, you know, whenever we, we talk about risk factors, uh, we always, always sort of uh, couch it in terms of whether they're modifiable or not. So some risk factors for AFib are not, like aging. We haven't figured that one out, right? Oh, We're... I wish we would. <laughs> Can we get on that, please? Right. And that's probably the most important risk factor, actually, as uh, AFib is, is very much a disease of aging, although we tend to see it uh, sometimes in younger patients in their 30s and 40s. By the time people uh, reach 80 years of age, about 20% of them will develop AFib. So as we get older, what probably is happening is the substrate in the heart is changing. You get more scarring. That scarring leads to certain changes that make what we refer to as profibrillatory. And then if they have a trigger, they'll develop AFib. Um, so age is one, uh, you know, being um, uh, overweight, uh, we're increasingly realizing now is a very important risk factor. And this is really some of the exciting news that sort of came out of this last conference. It's actually been around for a couple of years. But I was just really struck, you know, as sort of like an EP geek, like, uh, you know, at this conference, looking at the latest technology and looking at all these amazing things that we're able to do invasively. One of the most talked about topics uh, at our Heart Rhythm Conference uh, a few months ago was that weight loss. Has, seems to have an incredibly powerful impact on the progression of atrial fibrillation. And there's a group in Australia that's doing some very interesting work around this. And what they found in, in a, a very well-designed study is that if someone is able to lose just 10% of their body weight, uh, that that 
alone is probably more effective than putting someone on an antiarrhythmic medication. So it's really striking. You know, you could offer a patient, you know, a drug that has potential toxicities and side effects, or you could say, hey, let's figure out a way to help you reduce your weight. And that actually may have an even greater effect. So it's not easy. You know, weight loss is not a new concept uh, in medicine. We've been trying to figure out ways to help our patients lose this weight for, for many, many decades. But um, I'm kind of inspired by it. And it's something as, uh, you know, a proceduralist that I have to admit, you know, it, a lot of the times I, I wasn't focusing on it. So I'm now really rethinking how I, I, I think we need to target this disease, which is to say that we can't get away with just ablation alone especially for AFib because it's such a complicated disease. Unless we take a multi-dimensional sort of approach, which was, would include weight loss, management of diabetes, management of blood pressure, treating sleep apnea, all of these different things that play into the substrate of AFib, I don't think we're really going to make much headway. So if somebody were to have fibrillation, you know, I almost think of that whole thing, chicken or the egg, right? So should they should they do an ablation to help them to feel better so they can do the exercise to lose weight? Or should they try and work on losing weight before they do an ablation to make the ablation potentially more successful? Or could the weight loss actually resolve the atrial fibrillation? Yeah, that's a great question and one that comes up frequently in our clinic. And one of the things that we hear from our patients often is, I'm so tired because of the AFib, I can't exercise. And um, what I usually say is, well, that may be true, but, um, you know, you can also lose a lot of weight by making the right dietary changes. And this is one area where I think, you know, as um, cardiologists, we probably could be doing a better job. I'm thinking about, you know, my education in nutrition over four years of med school. I think it's maybe like we had a, a – yeah, yeah, if that. If maybe that. a month, maybe um, a couple and, of hours. Yeah, and there's a lot of controversy in nutritional sciences now. But, you know, the, the bottom line is there are probably many different pathways, nutritional pathways to help people lose weight. And I think we need to do a better job of helping our patients find that way. Uh, people that are overweight, no one chooses to be overweight. Um, this is probably, you know, hormonal regulatory problem. There are a lot of different factors that play into it. So we need the resources, I think, to help our patients do that. Um, but, you know, my feeling is... Uh, if someone is a good ablation candidate, what we try to do is encourage them to do everything in tandem. If they come to our office, they will pretty much automatically get a screening for sleep apnea. If they haven't been screened before, we now know that sleep apnea is like fuel for atrial fibrillation. So if they have sleep apnea and you don't treat it, you're probably not helping the patient very much. There's also some evidence that treating the sleep apnea can impact the disease. So that looks encouraging. Uh, we'll often refer them to uh, either the Ornish program or uh, comprehensive weight management uh, some patients want to try and do it on their own, and we encourage that as well. But the bottom line is uh, we don't just say, hey, sign here, we'll, we'll, we'll send you for an ablation. We're really trying to approach this from a, a more multidimensional standpoint. And so in that situation, if somebody has sleep apnea, treating that could eventually help them to, well, hopefully if they treat it, some of the things that have happened in the sleep apnea literature have shown that Getting adequate rest equals more energy equals better metabolism changes in hormonal regulation and the ability to exercise and lose weight. So for those people who have sleep apnea who might also have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, they're fighting a huge uphill battle trying to fix those conditions. But if they treat the apnea, it might make the other things actually even more treatable and it might help them to improve. So it sounds like really it's it's how ironic, isn't it, David? Everything gets back to the basics. Yeah, that's it was just really struck – 
it's striking to me that in a field that is really sort of on the forefront of technology that, you know, we're talking about some very, very basic tenets in healthcare. You know, what kinds of foods are we eating? You know, um, are we getting enough exercise? Are we, you know, out, outside uh, instead of being locked away in our offices all day, which, of course, I'm guilty of as well. Um, but these are the kinds of things that I think we need to really address seriously if we're going to impact this disease and many, many other diseases as well. And when we think about what are the negative consequences, you've sort of talked about atrial fibrillation progressing and that it can lead to other issues with your heart. Can it lead to permanent heart damage? And what else can happen? Yeah, no, it most certainly can lead to permanent heart damage. And, you know, um, I should say that there are people with atrial fibrillation who can stay in atrial fibrillation and can live a, a very normal life. And some people, for whatever reason, have very few symptoms. We still haven't figured out why some people are, you know, profoundly symptomatic and de- disabled by it, and other people don't even know they're in it. Uh, nonetheless, uh, over time, it can result in weakening of the heart, enlargement of the heart. It can cause heart failure. And probably the most devastating consequence, uh, and the one that we were about a lot is that is is stroke. Um, So people with AFib are are at much higher risk for stroke. And uh, the reason is because when blood is being flushed through the heart adequately in a normal rhythm, in a sinus rhythm, uh, there's no opportunity really for blood clots to form. But whenever blood is static, as in the case of AFib, because it's not being flushed through, blood clots can form actually in the heart. And if a blood clot forms in the heart and is dislodged and it travels to the brain, that's a stroke. So patients with AFib are definitely at high risk for stroke. And so the traditional therapy for patients with AFib, if they have enough risk factors for stroke, is to put them on a blood thinner. And the blood thinners will help reduce the risk of clot formation and therefore stroke as well. But the blood thinners don't cure fibrillation. The blood thinners just reduce the risk of stroke because I know some of the blood thinners, those are the commercials that you see on TV. And you'll see people say, my doctor said I had atrial fibrillation and I can control this by using, and they talk about, you know, the different blood thinner medicines that are out there that are different than Coumadin. Coumadin or Warfarin being one of the mainstays of treatments with blood thinners for many years. Now you're hearing about things like Pradaxa and Eliquis and Xarelto and these other pills that don't require the same monitoring have the same restrictions. But those don't, those don't cure AFib. They just reduce your risk of stroke. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, up until maybe, you know, eight, nine years ago, Coumadin was our only option. Uh, many of your listeners may or may not know that Coumadin was actually used as rat poison uh, for many years. And as it turns out, it was pretty helpful to humans as well in that it was uh, a blood thinner that could help reduce uh, a risk of stroke in many conditions, but particularly AFib. It was the only drug up until recently that was ever shown to prolong life in atrial fibrillation. And the reason is likely because it reduced stroke so effectively. The problem with Coumadin is that it's a pain for patients to take. It's a pain for doctors to prescribe. It has a very narrow, what we refer to as therapeutic index, meaning if you're too low, it's not helpful or, or effective. If it's too high, it's very risky. So um, recently, um, there have been several new drugs as, that have come out uh, You know that you've mentioned as alternatives to Coumadin that don't require finger pricks and constant monitoring. And that really has changed our ability uh, to, to change, to really get people to take these medicines uh, because it, Coumadin can be so challenging. And they tend to be quite effective. Uh, but you're exactly right. It doesn't do anything about the AFib itself. It only helps to reduce the risk of stroke if you have AFib. 
All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is from Queens Medical Center, and he is the chief of cardiovascular diseases there and an electrophysiology expert. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what this multidisciplinary team might need to include to really approach atrial fibrillation as part of a comprehensive way to adjust risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is an electrophysiology expert at Queen's Heart and Chief of Cardiovascular Diseases at Queen's Medical Center. So before the break, we were talking about the ways that we treat atrial fibrillation. And one of the ways is to prevent the risk of strokes. And that includes blood thinners and also may include trying to control how fast the heart is going when you're in fibrillation. Because it seems to me like the faster your heart goes, the more symptomatic you might be. And if you can control that heart rate, then that could make someone definitely feel a little better, maybe have that ability to do the exercise and activity to work on some of those other risk factors. Now, I remember from years ago, and again, this is aging me, that there was a previous controversy on which is better, rate control or rhythm control. Rate control is keeping your heart slow enough that you can function. Rhythm control is getting someone back into a regular rhythm. Is there an answer to that debate yet? Yeah, well, uh, the short answer is probably not, <laughs> but okay. a lot has then changed. I feel a little bit better because <laughs> I'm like, is... I still don't know what I ever figured out. Yeah, okay. so the trial you're referring to is one of the most important trials in modern medicine, actually. It's referred to as the, the AFFIRM trial. And uh, that basically sought to answer the question, should we try and keep people with a history of atrial fibrillation in a normal rhythm, or should we just be agnostic as to whether they're in it or out of it. But when they're in it, we want to make sure we control their heart rate. Because as we said earlier, an elevated heart rate can lead to all kinds of bad things. Now, the the issue was this was before ablation even existed for AFib. So the only way to, quote unquote, rhythm control people was to put them on antirhythmic drugs, which again, can be quite toxic and actually are not terribly effective. So what the trial showed was with respect to living longer, mortality, there was no difference between rate control and rhythm control. There are a couple of problems with this. Number one, uh, 50% of the patients in the rhythm control arm at the end of the study were in AFib. So what you're really looking at is actually the failure of antirhythmic therapy to really adequately control uh, atrial fibrillation. Um, the other issue is, you know, I uh, tend to think that we shouldn't look at mortality when we look at AFib because I'm not sure that uh, preventing AFib or stopping AFib in its tracks with whatever therapy you use may necessarily make you live longer. It may make you live better, right? And I think there's a real a wealth of literature now that would suggest that um, patients who get ablated uh, where their AFib burden goes down considerably have much better quality of life and uh, they tend to be able to do things that they couldn't do before. For. Um, and, you know, the, the jury's still out on whether there's mortality benefit. Uh, there was a trial called the Cabana trial. This was a trial that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and that was really designed to answer the question about whether 
uh, ablation resulted in a mortality benefit. And that was a, technically a negative trial. And there's some issues with why that is that I won't go into. But uh, a lot of people ask me, well, are you going to change your practice because Cabana didn't show mortality benefit? My response to that is I never ablated people to make them live longer. I made, made, I ablated them to make them live better. And so I think many of us practicing electrophysiologists do focus on that element of uh, care, trying to make their quality of life better rather than necessarily showing mortality benefit. Well, when you think about it, you, you know, although it's nice if someone lives longer, if they're not able to do activities that they enjoy, if they can't walk around with their grandkids or spend time with their family or, you know, go hiking in Peru, if that's what they choose to do, then there's certainly that element of quality versus quantity. That is that whole other argument that we, we there's no trial to answer that one. But when we take a look at the studies that have been done thus far, do you think if you were looking at quality of life now, doing something similar to the AFFIRM trial, but knowing that now the success of ablation is greater than the success previously found by the standard anti-arrhythmics of 20 years ago, do you think the trial would turn out differently? I mean, Cabana sort of asked that question, but not just looking at mortality, looking at morbidity, looking at rates of progression of heart failure and other sorts of conditions, has the use of electrophysiology techniques with ablation changed the progression of these individuals towards developing those complications from the cardiac standpoint that are the result of chronic AFib? I think there's a good case to be made for that. Uh, certainly, you could look at other things like decreased hospitalizations, which is an important endpoint, quality of life, which uh, also uh, seems to improve uh, with successful ablation. Um, so there are lots of different metrics that we can look at. Um, you know, I think this is still a, an evolving field, and we, there's a lot of questions that remain to be answered. The other thing is the technology continues to get better and better. And as I mentioned, I think we're going to be thinking about this a little differently rather than just focusing on ablation. We're really going to need to try and uh, treat patients a little more holistically. Um, so there, there's still a lot to, to, to learn. And that's one of the really exciting things about being in this field is that it does seem to change uh, by the day almost. Well, think about your dream in the next couple of years, where you would want to see patients who get referred into you for ablation. Maybe that's not what they're referred in for. Maybe they're referred into you for the diagnosis of having atrial fibrillation. Who else would be a member of your team to help you to really address this from that comprehensive perspective that you've alluded to that would be more than just, hey, I'm going to do an ablation, but rather, what else can we do about this overall risk? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's it made me think a lot about you know the practice of modern medicine, and 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 there are lots of reasons why it has evolved the way it has evolved. But we tend to be very siloed, right? You know, I'm a sub sub specialist, so you know, I just tend to focus on one tiny little dimension of the human body. And uh, there are many other of my colleagues that are focusing on other areas of the body. And um, somehow we're all supposed to kind of figure things out together, uh, even though we live in separate universes. And obviously, you know, many of us know, and, and there are other traditions that sort of focus uh, maybe a little more holistically um, in terms of how they treat patients 
And, and so I think that there's an increasing recognition that there needs to be a multidisciplinary approach to just diseases in general. Just to give you an example, you know, I've been working uh, very closely with our neurology colleagues um, at Queens because uh, they see a lot of atrial fibrillation because they're seeing patients coming with stroke. And often the first, uh, you know, recognition that a patient even has AFib is during a hospitalization for their index stroke. So we've been working together to help identify these patients and come up with a good treatment strategy for them. So sort of my vision, and, you know, it's quite embryonic at this stage, but, you know, what I would love to see in the future and hopefully the near future is if someone has AFib, they don't just come to see me for an ablation. They come to a center where we have multiple people from different disciplines working to address the the problem of AFib. That might include nutritionists that who can work with the patients to really help them lose weight uh, in a meaningful way. It might be a sleep center where we can, you know, identify whether they have sleep apnea. I'd really love to have a yoga studio in there. You know, I just came from yoga before this uh, 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 interview, and you know, I, I I think there's a there's a sort of a little bit of evidence out there now that yoga may actually impact AFib. But any of these therap- the sort of non traditional therapies that promote relaxation and well being really should be looked at as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I really believe that if we had a, a center like that, that we would really have a much better chance of controlling the disease and actually not just improving AFib, but improving the health, overall health of our patients. Well, that's a dream that I hope that we see succeed in the very near future, because not just for atrial fibrillation, but for a lot of different medical conditions, this comprehensive integrative approach is really, I think, where medical preventative care should be headed. So I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. Thank you so much. It was great being here. We will have to have you on again. If you'd like to hear this show, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on Monday on The Body Show. See you then. Mm